Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you could save at penfed.org slash auto refi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Before you drive the all-new Nissan Rogue, you gotta ask yourself, how rogue are you gonna go? We talking be one with nature in the desert rogue? Go snowshoeing in Alaska rogue? Or take the long way home just because kind of rogue? Just a question, but with five available drive modes, you're sure to find the answer. Go rogue in the all-new, fiercely reimagined 2021 Nissan Rogue. Now with the most standard safety features in its class. See owner's manual for important safety information. Auto Pacific segmentation. 2021 Nissan Rogue versus latest in market competitors. Base models compared. Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on. It's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number 820 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our new and ongoing supporters. If you enjoy the show and want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon or at our website. All of our supporters get Wicked Fun rewards, like access to our archives, ad-free shows, and more. Plus, at the $5 a month and above level, you get to hear our bonus stories first and get access to more content like our show Wicked Fairy Tales, as told by your librarian, currently only available to supporters. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or at thewickedlibrary.com. We're working very hard to make the show sustainable, and we do need your help to do that. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and we love hearing from you. Today's episode is a dark tale by returning author Sebastian Bendix. Today's storyteller is the very talented Graham Rowett, accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer, Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the stories you hear on the show, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It keeps them making more. 
You can learn more about Sebastian and find links to his work on his bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, let's get wicked. Hello, kiddies. You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> I met Burke at the Royale, that run-down one-screen movie theater that somehow had managed to stay open in my dead-end nowhere town. It was the late 80s, 87, I think, and I'd only been back home a week. I'd run away a year earlier, up the coast of Portland, where I ran for a while with a group of like-minded teens, turning tricks, scoring drugs, doing what kids do when they're trying to escape homes that have even less to offer than seedy street corners and burned-out squats. Don't ask me why I came back. Dad barely looked up from his hungover stupor when I walked back in the door. One year older and a whole lot wiser. Didn't matter. Dad and I had barely spoken since Mom died, and there wasn't much point in starting now. I just needed a roof over my head for a while, and as I was still under the age of 18, Dad was obligated to oblige, as long as I didn't get in the way of his drinking. After purchasing a $2 bucket of popcorn with some money I'd filched from the bottle-strewn coffee table while Dad snored on the couch, I strolled into the shabby auditorium, figuring I'd be the only one in there for the matinee showing of the Lost Boys, the sole beneficiary of intermittent bursts of cool air supplied by the theater's barely functioning air conditioning system. I figured wrong. There, seated in the front row, was some shaggy-haired kid I hadn't seen before. It was unusual in a dead-end desert town like this to not know other kids your age, even though the few people who scraped out a life here tended to keep to themselves. Teenagers tended to behave like pack animals, both fascinated and on guard when in proximity to one another, and it had been a few weeks since I'd spoken to another person my age. I was in the mood for a little social interaction, even if it was unwelcome, so I marched right over to the seat right behind him, plopped down, put the overstuffed backpack I carried with me at all times, made the unpleasant stops at home less frequent, in the empty seat next to me. As the movie started, I started munching popcorn as loudly as possible. It was then that I noticed the teen in front of me wasn't alone. As the movie went on, he kept leaning over and whispering to someone next to him, a person I couldn't see over the back of the rickety, uncomfortable theater seats. Leaning over, I caught a glimpse of a ratty, hooded sweatshirt and small, filthy hands clutching the armrests. A little boy. Possibly a younger brother? Maybe it was boredom or oppressive loneliness, but I couldn't help myself intruding. 
I started to kick my foot gently against the row of seats to the Lost Boys' thumping pop soundtrack, hoping for a reaction. It worked. The teen turned around and glared at me beneath a fringe of unkempt brown hair, looking like a rangier version of Robbie Benson from those 70s TV movies about troubled kids, The Death of Richie and Ode to Billy Joe. Do you mind? He said curtly. Sorry, man, I said, ceasing my annoying song accompaniment. By way of further apology, I offered him my greasy popcorn bucket. Want some? I can't finish it. No, thanks. Not quite Robbie Benson may have turned his nose up at my offer, but the little boy seated to his right turned and tugged gently at his sleeve, allowing me a glimpse of his pallid profile. Lit by the glow of the movie screen, his skin was ghastly, almost translucent gray. His eyes were clouded over as if damaged, pupils absent behind a curtain of smoke. I'm hungry, he whispered. Not Robbie ignored him, just kept his eyes on me. Please, the little boy said, his voice barely a gasp. I swear, I don't have cooties, I said, looking towards the little boy. Give it to the kid. Looks like he could use it. A look of shock came over his face. Jaw dropped slightly, disbelief. What did you say? I said give it to him. He still didn't seem to get it. I pointed to the kid. The kid with you, sitting right there. He looked at me, eyes narrowing. You see him? My stomach did a flip, and I almost hurled the half a bucket of popcorn I'd just eaten. I knew now why the little boy looked the way he did. I think I always knew, but was kidding myself. You see, this right here, this was why I ran away to begin with. Not Mom's death, not Dad's boozing. I ran because I was born with a curse, and that restless spirits had a way of making themselves known to me, and keeping moving seemed to be the only way to shake them off, at least for a while. But there's no running from the unquiet dead. They're everywhere. And apparently, I wasn't the only one who could see them. Shit, I said, standing, grabbing my backpack and letting the popcorn bucket spill onto the floor. I gotta go. Wait. The teen's lanky arm shot out, his hand grabbing my pack by the strap. Don't go. I can help you. I'm like you. I pulled free, the exertion causing me to stumble backwards into the row of seats. My worn sneaker tread slipped on popcorn grease, and I fell into the aisle, whacking my knee on a seat. I yelped and rolled on the dirty theater floor, hot pain momentarily blotting out the cold fear. I heard the sound of soft crying, and for a moment thought it was coming from me. But when the pain subsided, I looked up and saw the teen comforting the little boy with calming, quiet words. Don't worry, he said. We'll find her, I promise. We'll find your mommy. Don't be sad. The crying, one of the saddest, loneliest sounds I'd ever heard, faded away into the mix of the movie's soundtrack like an echo disappearing over a mountain range. Suddenly I felt calmed, unafraid. Then he spoke to me without turning back around, confident I was listening, which I was. You have to help them, see? Find out what they want, 
or at least give them some kind of purpose. He took pause, as if the realization was just taking form in his mind. Or you'll never be free, no matter where you go. He stood up from his seat, and the little boy stood, shadowing him. They both walked to the far end of the row to the far aisle that led in a slight incline to the lobby. Before leaving with the ghost, not Robbie turned to look at me, still seated on the grubby theater floor. Come on, I'll show you how it's done. Against my better judgment, I gathered my backpack off the floor and followed him out of the theater. Outside, the day was gray and overcast, and what passed for downtown was empty as usual. Not that anyone would have seen the dead little boy who walked between two scraggly teenagers. Most people didn't possess our terrible gift, and the ones that did tended to end up in mental wards, prisons, or dead, one of which was where I figured I'd eventually end up. But here, finally, was a dim ray of hope. It occurred to me to ask my new mentor his real name. Burke, was his answer. Didn't offer a last name, and I didn't ask. Last names were pretty meaningless to a runaway, which, based on my own time on the streets, I figured Burke was. Maybe he was running from the law. Maybe he didn't want someone back home knowing where he was. Either way, it was privileged information. A code of the road, one that I honored. He asked my name, and I told him it was Jacob. He didn't ask if I went by Jake, as most people did. I guess he just figured that Jacob was how I wanted to be referred to. He was right. We took the main drag out of town, making our way through the quiet, dusty streets that passed as neighborhoods. Most didn't even have sidewalks. The houses all low-rent, single-floor plywood affairs, little more than trailers. In fact, there were a few actual trailers. It wasn't so much that it was a poor town. It was a town that people were stuck in, as opposed to a town they had moved to by choice. This was a place you ended up, not a place you wanted to be. I could attest to that fact. We came to a shabby home, very much like the others we'd passed. Burke stopped at the driveway, which was little more than a dirt path. Blocking our way to the screen-doored front entrance was a rusted VW bug that looked like it hadn't run since before I was born. Not exactly a cheery place. I didn't know who lived there. It was a small town, but most of the people here came and went, or led generally inconsequential lives, and I certainly didn't make it a point to keep track of them. Burke knelt down to look the little boy right in his fogged-over eyes. He pointed to the sad excuse for a home. She's in there. Your mommy's in that house. Go on inside. She's waiting for you. The ghost boy turned to look at the house, then back to Burke, uncertain. Burke smiled at him, a warm, trustworthy smile. Go on. She's waiting in there with a nice big plate of cookies. Oreos? asked the little boy. Burke nodded. I would have believed there were Oreos waiting for me in there if he had said so. It was enough for the boy. He walked purposefully down the dirt driveway, around the rusted-out VW, coming to the door, hesitating again. He looked back to Burke. Go on! No need to open it, just step inside! The boy turned again, then taking a deep breath into lungs that no longer required breathing, 
stepped inside the door, or stepped through it, more accurately, phased past it as if it were a mere hologram and not a half-inch of not-so-sturdy plywood. In all my experience with phantoms and other spectral phenomena, I'd never seen one actually pass through solid material. They just tended to appear, as if conjured out of thin air. But then again, I'd never coached one. Satisfied, Burke started walking away, back towards town. Come on, he said, and I followed in step with him. He won't be bothering us anymore. It struck me as odd that Burke, a recent occupant of this humble burg, would know who lived in that shamble of a house. Did he tell you that was his home? Burke smirked, and for the first time I saw a different side of him, a cruel, spiteful side. Nope, he said, but now he thinks it is. Why would you do that? His smirk evolving to a full-toothed smile. The bitch who lives there sicked her boyfriend on me for selling her fake meth. Guess she's got bigger problems now. As I said, as a general rule, normal people couldn't see ghosts. Or not the way we could, at least. But the presence of them was nearly always felt, whether in the form of psychic angst, violent disruptions, or objects moving of their own accord, a.k.a. poltergeist activity. Being stuck in a place with a restless spirit for too long could drive even the most stable person insane. It wasn't a nice thing to inflict upon someone, to say the least, and it cast my new friend in a rather disturbing new light. Yet I was too intrigued by him to leave. After we'd walked a while, down into a cement drainage gully that had long dried up, I asked him the question that was burning at the forefront of my brain. So, how do you do it? Do what? Get them to do what you want them to. He stopped by a cluster of cinder blocks, propped one of them on its side to use as a stool, and sat down on it. I find out what they want, and I tell them I'll give it to them, he said, picking up a pebble and tossing it aimlessly to the side of the gully. I call it trick in the haunt. The smirk returned as he said it, clearly amused by his own cleverness. He was certainly clever in one regard, it had never even occurred to me to talk to the ghastly apparitions, let alone ask them what they want. It never even occurred to me that they might want something. Looking back on it now, it seems obvious. But I was kind of a naive kid in those days, not the sophisticated thinker I am now. But what happens when they find out you've tricked them? By that time, it's not my problem. He fished into the pocket of his sleeveless plaid shirt and pulled out a lone cigarette and a pack of matches. After a few strikes, he managed to get the cigarette lit, taking a deep drag. He offered it to me, but I politely declined, to which he shrugged. In my experience, he continued, the haunts tend to stay localized to a certain area, which is why I keep moving. I never stick around long enough for one to come looking for me, get it? I nodded, even though I don't think I completely got it at that point. Sensing my confusion, he stood cigarette dangling from his lower lip, and whacked me playfully on the arm. Come on, I'll show you. A few minutes later, we'd emerged from the woods surrounding the gully and arrived at a rusted-out school bus that was tucked away in a lot with several other abandoned vehicles. This used to be part of a junkyard owned by one of the town's more colorful characters, 
but he died a few years back before I ran away. Guess no one had taken over the property. Came by here the other day and saw the cops drag a body out of that bus. He stubbed out the last of his cigarette, which he had smoked down to the filter. Waste not, want not. Pretty sure it was some drifter junkie who'd been squatting there a while. I imagine his haunt is probably still poking around here somewhere. It's always like that with the tragic deaths, as you know. This stood to reason, but I still wasn't sure what we were doing here. Or rather, I had an inkling, and I didn't like it. Okay, I said. So what's the plan? Burke smiled. Well, what does a junkie want more than anything? I didn't have much interest in guessing, so I just shrugged. Burke pulled a little plastic baggie out of his pocket that was filled with some sort of yellowish granular powder. More dope, dummy. Though I'd been around heroin in my travels, I'd resisted trying it, so I had no solid reference point from which to judge the contents of Burke's baggie. And really, what did it matter? It could have well been mustard powder or lemonade mix. The goal here, from what I could gather, was to trick a junky ghost that we had the fix he was jonesing for from beyond the grave. To that end, it certainly appeared that Burke was in possession of the desired narcotic, and appearances were all that mattered when it came to tricking the haunt. At least, that's what I assumed he was trying to show me. Come on, Burke said. Let's see what we can see. He went to the bus, and I followed, not fully understanding why I was following him. I'd already seen plenty of ghosts. Sorry, haunts, I mean. So what was the draw here? More than anything, I think I was intrigued that these spirits, or specters, or whatever they were, could actually be manipulated in some way to do the bidding of the living. In my experience, these manifestations did whatever they wanted, and it had never occurred to me to try controlling one. I had to know if this was really possible, or if Burke was just leading me along some elaborate ruse. There was a handle on the rusted bus door, which Burke pulled over with a sphincter-tightening screech. He stood there at the open door, looking at me expectantly. Ladies first, he taunted. I stood there, hesitating, adjusting the backpack over my shoulders. If I hadn't been mired in the lingering insecurities of adolescence, I would have never accepted this challenge. But the rules are different when you're a teenager, especially when you're a boy teenager. For that intangible reason, I wanted Burke's respect, wanted to show him I was no coward, and here was my chance to prove it. Besides, what was the worst that could happen? I took the few short, dirty steps into the bus, and Burke followed close behind. The interior of the bus was arguably worse than the exterior. There was a thin coating of dirt on the floor, the rows of vinyl seats torn and threadbare, and in some cases ripped from the floor and pushed over to make a sort of crawlspace shelter. The windows, many of them sporting cracked glass, were so smeared with grease and dirt that they were almost blacked out. Though somewhat muted by weeks of vacancy, the bus smelled like a noxious mixture of stale mildew, vomit, sweat, and human waste. My throat hitched at the initial stench, and I opted to take in air exclusively by mouth. Leading the way, I walked the aisle to about halfway to the rear of the bus, Burke at my back. Nothing stirred among the seats. 
No sudden movement, either human or animal, and I started to feel confident that the bus was empty. Of living things, at least. Seeing no need to walk all the way to the emergency door, I stopped. Okay, I asked Burke without turning around. Now what? I felt him unzip an outer pocket of my backpack, deposit something inside, then quickly zip it up. I tried to turn, but my backpack hit the side of a row of seats, stopping me from being able to turn fully back around. The sound of racing footfalls clued me into the fact that Burke was hightailing it out of the bus, leaving me behind. Hey, Ronnie! He shouted. My boy here's got your fix! I readjusted my backpack and managed to clear the seat just in time to see Burke exit the bus hastily and pull the accordion door behind him with a slam. Hey! I yelled. What the hell? Something stirred at my back. A groaning shuffle coming from the rear of the bus. There was a gasping that sounded like wind blowing through a forest of dead trees. I ran for the front of the bus, to the now shut accordion door, not chancing a glance back to see what was coming for me. I didn't need to look. I knew what was coming. It was Ronnie the Junkie, all leathery and atrophied, clutching at me for his fix. A fix that my good friend Burke had deposited into one of the pockets of my overcrowded backpack. In my haste, my foot struck an upturned seat bracket, and I tumbled to the dirty aisle floor, landing hard on my elbows. I had barely a second to register pain before I felt a presence descend on me, clawing at my backpack with such force that I was lifted off the floor. I tried to wriggle free of the pack's straps, but it was no use. I kept the straps tight, an old habit I'd picked up on the road as a precaution against theft. The addict entity yanked me up hard, and it was only the force of my own thrashing that sent me falling back to the floor for another hard landing. Despite the terror and panic spiking my brain, I did notice something lying in the dust under one of the seats. A dirty old syringe with the tiniest amount of liquid still in it. Without thinking, I grasped for the dirty needle, managing to get a grip on it without sticking myself on the unsanitary needle point. With strength born of adrenaline, I flipped over, holding the needle out in front of me. The toothless, mummified horror, far worse than I imagined, stopped short at the sight of my offering. Here, I gasped. Take it! Ronnie, if that truly was the entity's name, reached his spindly, atrophied fingers for the syringe. Where his fingers touched mine, I felt an icy tingle living flesh meeting some sort of spiritual ectoplasm I couldn't fully fathom. His hand withdrew, and though the filthy syringe was still clutched in my fingers, a spectral double of it now sat clutched in Ronnie's fingers, as if my offering became a psychic projection once in his possession. He withdrew with the spectral syringe, settled into a seat in the rear of the bus, and plunged the needle into his waiting arm, letting loose a deep, dead sigh, the sound of rotting leaves. I pulled myself to my feet and ran to the front of the bus, kicking open the door and stumbling outside. Burke was waiting for me there, laughing. Fuck you, man! I howled, enraged. I charged at him, pushing him with both hands. He just kept laughing and grabbed my hands by the wrist, attack easily thwarted. Easy there, killer! 
Cool down. I was just testing you, seeing if you could handle it. I gotta say, kid, I'm impressed. You're a natural. I stopped struggling, calming down, and he let me go. The fact was that Burke was bigger than me and clearly knew his way around a fight, which I did not. For a runaway, I was soft, in need of toughening up, which was exactly what Burke seemed to be doing. You wanted to know the score. The only way to find out is to face it head on. He patted me on the shoulder. Don't worry, man. I wouldn't have let him hurt you. He stood back, taking in my filthy, seething appearance. Come on. Let's get you cleaned up. An hour later, the sun was set, and I found myself following Burke yet again, this time to a place I knew well, a public pool on the edge of town. The summer season was coming to an end, and the pool was closed, but the town had yet to drain it, leaving behind a brackish swimming hole. It was far from inviting, but I was happy to wash the encounter in the bus off of me by any means necessary. Burke stripped down to his tidy whities and cannonballed right into the water, resurfacing with a challenge for me to do the same. I set down my backpack with the fake heroin still in it somewhere, stripped down to my boxers, and stepped timidly into the pool at the shallow end. Despite its questionable state, the cold water was refreshing to my dirty, weary body. I ducked myself fully under the water, and after resurfacing, I waded out further into the pool, finding the exact spot where I could balance on my toes while still remaining mostly submerged. Burke, however, wasn't inclined to play it so safe. He swam out to the deep end, positioning himself under a diving board that was in serious need of replacing, gripping the underside, allowing his legs to kick lazily free. For the first time, I saw him as the kid he still was. "'So,' I said, making conversation, "'you seem to know a lot about this town. Been here long?' "'Nah,' Burke said, swirling his legs in the water absently. "'Just a few weeks. But I talk to people, hear stuff. I like to get the lay of the land. "'You ever hear anything about this pool?' "'Not really,' he answered. "'Why?' You afraid I'm going to spring another haunt on you? I smiled. It's funny, because this place is pretty infamous. You ever heard of Lacey Hardigan? Burke scowled at me from the shadow of the diving board. Tracy who? Hardigan, I repeated calmly. She was a girl who lived here a few years back. Her parents were drunks and drug addicts, and as a result, Lacey was born mentally disabled. Her mother felt so guilty about it, she intentionally OD'd a few years after Lacey was born, left her with her drunk father, which meant it fell on her older brother to raise her. He used to take her swimming here all the time. Okay, Burke said, getting annoyed with my little tail. So some retard used to come here with her big brother. Why should I give a shit? Because one day, when the stoned lifeguard wasn't looking, her brother pushed her under drowned her without anyone noticing. They probably thought they were playing, just messing around. I guess Big Brother wasn't looking forward to a life chained to his handicapped sister, wiping her ass until they were both old and gray. He pushed her under and held her down till she stopped struggling, till the last of the bubbles erupted from her water-filled lungs. Then he pulled himself out of the pool and ran. Ran as far as he could, before anyone knew what he'd done. A spooked look came over Burke's face. 
but he brushed it off with a flip of his wet hair. Whatever. You're full of it. Just trying to get back at me for freaking you out. I want to thank you, Burke. My voice remained measured, calm. I figured sooner or later I'd have to pay for what I'd done. But thanks to you, I don't have to. Thanks to you, someone else can pay for me. I ran my hand through my dyed blonde hair, showing my roots. A disguise meant to trick my own haunt. I guess Burke was right. I was already a natural at this. You know, we used to look a lot alike, you and I. Enough, say, to fool a retarded girl who might be looking for the brother that drowned her a year ago. Burke's eyes widened. His face blanched pale, but remained defiant. You're so full of shit, Jacob. Most people call me Jake. Jake Hardigan, brother of Lacey, drowned in this very pool. Right under that diving board, in fact. As the words left my mouth, I felt her beneath the surface, rising from whatever parallel dimension she lay waiting, waiting for this moment to be called forth to claim her revenge. Now, so many years later, I've come to understand that those of us with a connection to this other dimension are also granted the power to call to those who lay in wait, call them forth to do our bidding. Call them ghosts, call them demons, call them haunts. It doesn't matter. They are ours to trick, ours to command. I could see her now, rising in a plume of bubbles, in that very spot I drowned her a year before, right underneath the diving board, right underneath Burke. He sensed her too, looking down at her dead, dopey face reaching up for him. "'smiling in that vacant way she always smiled at me, "'that sweet, clueless gaze of affection I'd come to so deeply resent. "'Burke thrashed in the water, "'tried to pull himself up by the diving board, but it was too late. "'Lacey had him now in her grip, "'and my sister's grip was always preternaturally strong. "'It took everything I had to get her to stop pulling me down that day, "'to stop her from taking me with her into watery oblivion.' and it was only when the bubbles stopped that I knew she was dead. As dead as Burke would be moments from now. Burke screamed, and with a spine-wrenching yank, he was gone under the surface. All that remained were the bubbles. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. What would it look like if we all listened more? As you might imagine, we're big fans of Audible here at the Wicked Library. Audio stories make your commute, workout, and your day in general more wicked. And with Audible, you can get access to your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Plus, Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. So, it's easy to find something wicked that you'll love. Like what? Well, if you enjoy this show, you'll enjoy Shadows at the Door, an anthology. Not only does it include stories by authors you've heard on this show, like Parsec Award finalist Christopher Long, Parsec Award winner K.B. Goddard, Caitlin Marceau, Mark Nixon, and me but it's also narrated by me and Cynthia Lohman. Get Shadows at the Door or any other great title on Audible for free when you sign up. 
Try Audible for free for 30 days by visiting audible.com slash wicked or by texting wicked to 500-500. Each month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook they choose and Audible originals from a changing selection they can't get anywhere else. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Didn't like your audiobook? Exchange it. No questions asked. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash wicked or text wicked to 500-500. See today's show notes for a link. So today my guest is Sebastian Bendix, and we just listened to your tale, Tricking the Haunt, which is a great title. Uh, I always like it when, when, the, when the title kind of plays into the story, and there's some really great payoff with that in this tale. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It was uh, Now, if I remember correctly, when I had reached out to you, because we had you on in season six, and I asked you know if you'd like to come back, if there was a story that you might have that you'd like us to do. And if I remember correctly, didn't you tell me that you had something that you were kind of working on and you wanted to kind of dust it off and frame it out? Was this something that you kind of wrote for the purposes of uh, having it featured on the show? Well, in a way, yeah. Um, in, what it was was um, I, I would, I'd been sort of developing this um, idea of, you know, basically I wanted to write a ghost story, but where like the basic idea is that people are manipulating ghosts to do what they want, you know, because in a traditional ghost story, it's always sort of like the ghost comes to the person and and it's about the mystery is figuring out what the ghost wants. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I wanted to sort of turn that on its head and be like, well, what if somebody could make ghosts do what they want them to do, you know, and, and to haunt other people or to manipulate them, basically sort of weaponize them but um, I, but I, I, you know, so I was working from this sort of bigger idea, and it was really, you know, I, you know, I was thinking of a novel or a screenplay, you know, something that was larger in scope than a short story. Mm-hmm. But I was really having a problem cracking it. I couldn't, you know, I, and I'm, you know, it's still something I'm trying to work on. But it, like, I couldn't really crack the larger story. So when you got in touch with me. Um, I sort of thought about it and I was like, you know, maybe I should test drive this in a smaller short story. So that's basically what I did. I, I you know, I had the, the sort of the germ of the idea and I was like, well, maybe I can scale this down into something that would be like a just small, punchy short story that would be, you know, ideally suited for the Wicked Library format. And that's kind of basically what I did. Yeah, it worked out really well, and and I, I like that approach too. It's it's always kind of interesting when you can take a concept like that, play with it in that short story form, and I think that that sometimes gets the the wheels turning to the point where you're like, okay, now I know what the bigger story is. Right, exactly. You know, and you can sort of play with different ideas and scenarios, and you know, you don't feel that sort of pressure of you know, well, I got to make you know this is this is for all all the marbles, so to speak. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's it's sort of just kind of like, you know, beta testing an idea and seeing if it actually kind of works. So, and, and I wanted to say one of the things that I found really interesting about this, and, and I, I hope the, the listeners feel the same, is, 
you know, we have a situation with this story where we start off with this sympathetic narrator, um, and we, we kind of have this buy-in with him, you know, and he, we feel like he's the one that's being manipulated and led along by this other individual. Um, and by the time we get to the end of the story, we realize that they're both bad people and anything that happens to them is pretty much deserved. Right. Well, that's sort of, um, I sort of was drawing from the sort of classic EC comics type of narrative structure where, you know, it's basically, you know, yeah, everybody's kind of bad, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) you know, and it's a, and you know, you're 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 convinced that one person's sort of the villain and then it turns out like no no they're both terrible so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i think that that's a nice payoff too because it's really hard sometimes especially i mean you know because you're a writer and i think a friend of mine and i call this the writer's curse where because you've written before and, and you you kind of pay attention to how story and plot works a lot of times you know kind of what's coming uh and in, in this situation I was pleasantly surprised that by the time I got to the end of the story, I, I was not expecting what happened. So that was really nice. Yeah. Well, I kind of, I kind of had that moment with the story where I realized that that was sort of where it needed to go. And originally the protagonist was originally more just sort of straight sympathetic, but I, it sort of was, I kind of came to that as I was sort of working it out. I was like, no, it needs to go here, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's cool when the story kind of leads you in the direction. And I'll tell you, one of the other things that I found really interesting is, as you talked about, you know, manipulating the, the spirits and, and kind of weaponizing them, uh, it, it kind of makes sense because you have ghosts and spirits who are, according to common lore, they're here because there's something that they're drawn to or there's, there's some sort of unfinished business or some sort of need that they have to be fulfilled. And basically, you take these characters who have... The ability to see and communicate with them and have them play on that need. So rather than just being terrified of them, it's kind of like, well, I know what you want and here it is. Right. But it's sort of like the logical next, uh, you know, step in, say, the kid from the sixth sense grew up and was a jerk. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like he'd probably figure out some horrible thing to do with them or some way to get them to to get back at people that he he felt had wronged him or something like that. Or maybe I'm just a jerk and that's what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's always interesting when you have somebody that has a power and you're like, well, what would a a normal person do with this? How could someone be corrupted by this power? Uh, And that's kind of where we go with it. So what was your biggest struggle with the story? Because I know you said you you kind of took it from this bigger idea and kind of worked it into a story and, and brought it to life. Obviously, I'm, I'm always interested in what some of the, the struggles are that go into bringing it to life. Well, yeah, I mean, that that was sort of the initial struggle was that it was a much bigger idea. And I, you know, just needed to sort of whittle it down to what I felt the bare essentials were. And then, uh, like we also sort of touched upon, you know, the the sort of intent of the the uh, protagonist, the, the 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 story's narrator, you know, wasn't immediately, uh, you know, known to me. Um, uh, and and there were just there were little things like, you know, I played around with um, sort of the uh, the junkie scene, and it was sort of trying to figure out what these you know what kind of um entities would be 
it be easier to manipulate you know like what sort of uh spirits could be kind of easily fooled and and you know so it was just you know it was a, it was actually a lot of things i mean i wouldn't say that the writing of it overall was hard once i sort of had the basic idea then it pretty much flowed and you know the revisions um were a sort of normal process but i mean it was really kind of just arriving at both the the basic the basic way the story was going to be delivered and then figuring out what the protagonist really wanted gotcha so with this one what was it that kind of was the key to to unlock the door and get the story flying was it the characters or one of the characters or the uh the situation the setting what kind of spoke to you and, and pushed you forward I've definitely, um, I, in, in my life and I want to, I want to put this uh, as, as, as delicately and as sympathetically as possible. Um, and you know, I, I don't want the fact that the, the characters in the story, um, are, end up being sort of bad people that that's my attitude towards, uh, the homeless problem <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's very much the opposite of that i i have i'm i i uh i'm currently um i work part-time at a library and um it's a great old sort of spooky library and i'm gonna use that in one of my next stories but um you know we uh, working at the library i i deal with a lot of sort of transient um people because that's a sort of place that they go mm-hmm. now and it's moving that situation, people who don't have a home and people who are transient really affect me emotionally. And it's it in, a, in Los Angeles, where I live, it's becoming more and more of a pronounced problem. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people on the street here and there's a big disparity between people who are living on the street and people who have a, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see it all the time and you see it sort of spill into these areas of town where you wouldn't expect to see it. And it's really, it's really affecting. And I'm finding myself drawn to sort of stories about people in these situations more just because I'm, 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 I think I'm profoundly emotionally affected by it. So that's kind of, I guess, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, you know, that's how I sort of landed on the characters, you know, the, and I'm finding that to be the a subject that I'm returning to a lot right now. So yeah, I think that's really valid. I mean, I think as, as artists, when we work, when we're storytellers, that's it, kind of where we get our own therapy. It's how we work through these situations and, and come to understand it. Uh, exactly. And I think it's, it's helpful not only for us, but, you know, f- to help others understand kind of, what these situations are and work through them. And I think that's really the important thing about, you know, art in whatever form it is from, you know, painting to storytelling, to writing, to whatever your chosen form is, whatever way works for you. I think that's why I talk to so many horror writers that seem like they're more well-balanced than the, uh, the non-artists that I know, because you kind of work through all that dark stuff. Oh, exactly. I think that's, and I always tell people that I, I get that question a lot from people who aren't, fans of the horror genre it's a very common question like what do you like about this stuff you know like i'm like well what i like about it is that it allows me to sort of 
deal with these darker ideas and and it's and it's it's a safe place to do so and and i mean i think that supernatural fiction in particular um you know I and mean, we all have our own beliefs about uh what's real and what's not but uh I feel that when you're dealing with supernatural horror, it's a step removed from reality and it allows you to sort of go through these sort of darker facets of life and and deal with them in sort of a safe and I think healthy way. And people think it's all really weird when you know you ex- try to explain to them why Friday the 13th movies are healthy but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean it, I think they are <laughs> yeah. absolutely I mean it kind of goes back to you know Twilight Zone and classic Star Trek and it's it's it allows you to tell a story that is kind of like you said it's removed from reality and I think sometimes it, it helps you reach people that wouldn't be receptive to just dealing with the issue right out in front. You kind of get to couch these things behind scenarios and situations that can change people's minds because without knowing it, they've gone down this path with you and they're like, now I'm at this destination. This all kind of makes sense. Yeah, exactly. You, you put it beautifully. It's sort of like you're, you know, you're sneaking them in and they don't realize it, you know, like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> into your, into your, what you're trying to, deal with um but yeah you you put it very well it's a beautiful thing about story and storytelling so what surprised you most when you were working on this story was there anything you know either in the beginning in the middle kind of towards the end where you got to a point in something or someone did something that you weren't really expecting you're like ah now this is what's going to happen um, well, like I said, uh, I, I, I wasn't really aware of the main character's ultimate sort of motivation until um, I had drafted it. It might have been second draft. So that was surprising. And also um, an element of it that kind of took me off guard was as I kept working on it, I realized that like, you know, and I, I don't know if this comes through necessarily in the story but it's really a california uh story and i'm um i'm from the east coast uh, you're from boston right I, i'm i'm from pittsburgh actually and you're, oh, you're from pittsburgh yes. right right okay. yeah um I'm, I'm originally from boston as mm-hmm. i think we touched upon this the last time and um for a long time i sort of would write in an east coast settings would were very common for me and sort of an east coast mindset and with this story i really you know, I've been here a while now, and, and to me, this really felt like a California setting and California experience. And I, I was sort of surprised to find myself in that because I, I haven't written too many things that are specifically California. A couple of things, but I, you know, I travel a lot to um, Oregon because I have family there, and there's a sort of stretch of California that is kind of strangely desolate and. I think about it while I'm traveling through it because I wonder who lives here and who's <laughs> and what are they doing, <laughs> you know, like, so, and that that's in my mind, that's really where the story takes place. And, you know, it was kind of just my way to sort of explore streets that I 
think about and pass by. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I kind of picked up on that, too, because we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of where your voice comes from and, you know, kind of where your inspiration for stories come from. And, and the last story we did uh, was very much, a, a, obviously, a Boston story, very much an East yeah, story. Specifically Boston. <laughs> very specifically Boston, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, the East Coast ha- is a, you know, as a place with a lot of history and you mm-hmm. sort of, you know, when you're writing sort of supernatural fiction, you kind of find yourself drawn there. But the West Coast has its own sort of haunted quality and it's oh, it's yeah. different. You know, it's a different it's a different uh, sort of supernatural, you know, tableau. And and uh, it was just I it was strange. I, I, I didn't think much about the setting, but I just sort of found myself in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. You know? And I was like, I'm kind of writing about California in a way here, you know, and, and that was surprising to me. No, I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And yeah, it definitely had a different feel to it, a different flavor to it. I found that really interesting. So what routines or, or favorite rituals do you have to kind of get you into the proper mindset when you're sitting down to write and want to create? Well, coffee is a necessity. Um, <laughs> I, it, re- I, it really needs to be there. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But I definitely will sort of surround myself with media that I feel is um, uh, relevant. You know, it can be thematically relevant or it can be just, you know, genre specific. You know, if I'm writing a ghost story, I'll, I'll want to sort of take in some ghost stories and read some books and uh, watch some TV shows. I'm really enjoying the new Netflix uh, Haunting at Hill House. Really, really enjoying it. I think it's a great ghost story. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, I mean, and in, and a lot of people, like I can put on movies and have them playing in the background and write. Like I, on, I honestly kind of find that sort of gets me in the mood. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who, who think that's crazy. <laughs> um, you know, like I'm actually, I actually write better when I'm have like a movie on in the background rather than like music because music can sort of distract me in a weird way. Um, but movies, I can sort of tune them out and just sort of soak in the sort of general vibe and atmosphere. And that I find that that actually kind of helps me to get into the mood. And so a strong cup of coffee and some, you know, good Blu-rays or you know, Netflix streaming is kind of my key. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, so what have you been up to since last time we had you on the show and last time we talked, I'm sure you've been writing a lot and doing a lot of cool stuff. I've been writing a lot. Uh, I've, uh, um, had some, some pretty, uh, you know, nice, um, developments in terms of a script that I wrote. Uh, it got optioned and now it's sort of being kicked around, but, um, you know, there's, there's interest in it and it's, uh, you know, it's had, you know, it's, it's has producers attached to it and stuff. You know, it's Hollywood. So you, you never know what'll happen with those things. Right. Usually thing, but you know, it's nice that people are responding to my work regardless. Um, and, uh, I recently, I think, but I don't remember for sure between the last time we talked, but I did publish a novel. Um, it came out, it's called the stronghold it's not a horror. It's more of a sort of a um, dystopian sort of uh, semi-post-apocalyptic kind of YA story. But it's very, 
topical and deals with a lot of the prescient issues of the time. Um, and it's sort of about a survivalist colony and I'll sort of leave it at that. And, um, I, my wife and I are putting out, uh, my first anthology, which, um, features uh, all of the sort of horror short stories that I've written, which includes the, um, tricking, tricking the haunt and sweet and sticky Sarah, both of which, uh, you have graciously, uh, put on your show. So those will be included in that anthology and we are looking to get it out by Halloween. So, oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, it's going to be called the Diorama and other stories. Uh, so yeah, it's basically a, a horror anthology in the style of you know Stephen King's Night Night Shift or or you know whatever. It's all me, so it's not other <laughs> it's not other writers. <laughs> nice. Well, you got a nice collection, a nice collected works coming out then, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I ended up, uh, you know, I, I have quite a few stories, and uh, and a lot of them are sort of longer. They're sort of um, novella length almost so it's it's pretty it's going to be a pretty hefty uh uh, pretty hefty anthology Um, well that's really cool we're real excited about it yeah that's awesome well uh sweet and sticky sarah came out uh march 26th of 2016 so it's been a little while uh so you have been busy the novel that you're talking about sounds like it's something that i would enjoy as well i like the dystopian stories so oh yeah cool well i think i think you'd dig it Cool. Check it out. Well, I'll definitely pick it up. Um, what other stuff are you working on that, that we can look for to come out aside from uh, obviously something as this air is coming out in just a couple of weeks? Well, I'm uh, working on a comic book. Um, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to come out, but uh, it's something that I it's near and dear to my heart. I, you know, I enjoy I'm a, I'm a comic reader and mm-hmm. I, you know, I like all sorts of comic books. So um this is a character called Mr. Simeon, who's um, uh, sort of a animal rights um, anti-hero. I think it would probably be the best term. He's okay. not really a superhero, but he's something else. But uh, um, it's a lot of fun, and and um, he seems to get a good response out of people. So um, yeah, I'm I'm working on that now, and um, I have another. I'm developing another uh, horror story, which. I think I'm going to uh, probably write as a screenplay first, um, and then I'm going to probably try to do a short story version. So we'll see how that comes out. But that's dealing with my um, employment at the uh, Pasadena Public Library, which is an awesomely um, creepy old library. Awesome. So so is it easier for you to write uh, a screenplay and then turn it into a short story or or do you usually prefer to do it the other way around? I'm always interested um, by that. Yeah, I mean, uh there it's it, I have done that certainly um in the past I sort of started in that direction because I had been sort of working on screenplays for such a long time and then I got sort of frustrated with the way that whole process works or doesn't work you know Mm -hmm. usually um you know i wanted to to get my stories out there in a form where they could live on their own so i definitely in the beginning um i would sort of adapt my screenplay ideas into um sort of short story slash Mm -hmm. novellas a couple of my stories that will be in the anthology started off as screenplays um but then once i got the bug for writing prose i kind of took that step out of the process unless i think it's an idea 
that is kind of bigger, you know, and, and sort of fits better into um, a screenplay format. And then it sort of enters into a place where I consider possibly developing it into a novel. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of where it goes, but they're really, what I like about the screenplay format is it's kind of like a, um, you can look at it as sort of an outlining, you know, like a, a next stage. And I like, it, um, you know, depending on what your process is for outlining, I usually kind of write a basic document. And then, you know, do, if the story is involved enough to demand a sort of screenplay treatment, I can then do a screenplay and sort of look at that as like a, an advanced outline. Mm -hmm. And that it, that kind of gives you like, you can play with dialogue and, and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, once you've sort of um, committed to the the prose version, you know, it's sort of like a house of cards that if you start to change stuff, you've got a lot more work to do. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> if you're going to go back like, oh, uh, you know, it, it's easier to sort of take the toys out of the toy box and play with them in screenplay format and sort of figure out like, oh, this works, this doesn't work. And then, you know, you know, if you if you know you like it in screenplay format, you can usually uh, then put it into prose in a way that you're not, you know, second guessing too many of the, the broader strokes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I find that fascinating because it's one of the things that I, I'd like to try to do with the show more going forward is we, we did one episode early, or for actually first episode of the season uh, was a short story that the author had then taken and adapted into uh, kind of like an audio play, which is, I yeah. guess, close to a screenplay, except it's obviously there's no visual cues. So I'm sure that makes it a bit different in the process of writing it. You're more focused on the the sound effects and, you know, the vocals and, and that sort yeah. of thing. And how does it play out without she said smiling type of thing? You know, you have to kind of put that into the way that the actor is going to deliver the lines instead of relying on, you know, your dialogue tags and everything to kind of carry that. Right. It becomes stuff that you have to put into like words that the, the, the characters say or, or, you know, you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm a big fan, obviously, of, of your show. And I also love, uh, you know, I, I, I love old radio serials like The Shadow and yeah. Lights Out stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a specific style to it that I think is really cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, most people... <laughs> go in the other direction where they, you know, write a short story or whatever, and then turn it into a screenplay. But for, for whatever reason, I've kind of come at it the other, other direction, but like, I didn't do that for this story. It, it was basically just outlined and then written. So. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. I, I always find processes fascinating. And I, and I know that a lot of the listeners are writers themselves or aspiring writers. And, and I think that insight into all that stuff is interesting because, you know, while nothing 100% works, like you couldn't take your process and transfer it on, you know, directly over to somebody else. There's little bits and pieces that people can pick out of other authors and other writers processes that sometimes end up being really helpful. Right. And I, t and I touched upon, I, t I basically touched upon this last time we spoke, but it's like, whatever gets you writing, you know, yeah. like, if, if, if it's easier for you to do get your ideas out in a screenplay form, then do it that way. Do it however you can, you know, like whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, as long as you're writing, as long as you're getting the idea down in some way, then, you know, that's that's writing. That's what it is. That's the most important part to put the words down on the page in whatever form that may be. And then just work on it and polish it until it's able to stand on its own, really. 
Exactly. So since we're, we're airing this right before Halloween, I guess I'll ask you a Halloween style question. So what is, uh, I guess, two questions. What is one of your favorite Halloween traditions, be it, you know, uh, reading a certain story or watching a certain movie, certain things to listen to? And uh, wh- what's something that you would recommend uh, to a listener to try out something new that, uh, you know, maybe a movie or, or a book that you've read that maybe other people may not have read. Well, that's really funny because I'm in the middle of my Halloween tradition, awesome. which is, well, <laughs> I don't think anybody's <laughs> going to be that impressed with it, but I, every year I uh, watch all of the Halloween movies in the Halloween franchise, <laughs> because I'm just a big fan of Michael Myers in the, that character. Um, and this year is especially exciting because the yeah, a new the one new coming, movie out. Is coming out yeah. and I'm hearing a lot of good things now. <laughs> I would not recommend anybody do this because most of the Halloween movies are pretty terrible. <laughs> and, um, you the camp and the like nostalgia part to of, it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of reminded of this every year. It's this sort of like Sisyphusian task that I put myself through every year. It's like, <laughs> all right, time to watch it. And I'm always very excited. Yeah, you know, all right. Like, and I pop in the first movie and of course it's a classic and it's great. And then, you know, um, by the fourth movie, I'm like, Oh, what have I done? <laughs> um, but, uh, but, um, you know, I actually found a different way to sort of break them up. Like I'm doing them. I'm this extremely nerdy, um, n- new continuity, like where I'm just doing the ones that Jamie Lee Curtis is in. And then I go back and do the ones that were the sort of bastardization offshoot that don't feature Jamie Lee Curtis. And then I do <laughs> the Rob zombie ones. And then I do Halloween three, which is the craziest one that doesn't fit in at all. And that doesn't have Michael Myers in it. I save that one for last is sort of like the, <laughs> the palate cleanser. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really ridiculous, and I would not recommend anybody do it. But, I mean, if you, I don't know, if it sounds like a good idea, maybe give that a try. It sounds um, it sounds like an interesting <laughs> approach. I mean, it's it's probably a way that, that very few people have, have viewed the series before, so it might be worth a try. It's just, to me, those movies, I mean, obviously, they're called Halloween, so they've branded themselves as such. But to me, they, they kind of really get me in the mood for the Halloween experience. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, my wife and I are big horror fans and we just, we, you know, we, we generally pretty much watch horror movies all year long, but we really try to do it up on Halloween. And, and, um, I think, like I said, the, the real, the real, um, treat for me this year has been discovering the Netflix haunted, uh, the haunting of Hill house series. I think it's just great. I can't believe how good it is. I'm a big fan of the Shirley Jackson story, of course. Um, and the, in the original movie. And, uh, what I really like about it is how it just, it sort of takes it's those elements and sort of mixes it into a really great family drama. I'm really enjoying it. It's awesome. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. But. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, it's, uh, it's a question I've not asked before, but I'm thinking, Hey, it's close to Halloween. Um, you know, maybe, maybe some listeners are looking for some inspiration of things they can do that, that'll change things up. I mean, obviously we all have our favorite traditions with Halloween, things that we like to do because the nostalgia, you know, it's kind of like you talk about the old, the, the campy and, and 
terrible nature of some of the movies, but there's yeah. a nostalgia there that's, it's like candy corn, you know? Candy corn is terrible. It it's is. Not, it's not a good candy, but no. we all enjoy it on Halloween that's because right. that's what Halloween is. That's right. So. That's right. I think to me, Halloween, because I'm such a horror fan, it's not like I need any excuse to enjoy <laughs> horror movies or read horror fiction. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, with the Halloween season, I think it's almost more about getting in the nostalgic mood. Right. For it. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, anything else that you want to you want to talk about? Anything else you want to plug places where folks can maybe interact with you and reach out if they enjoy today's story? Um, well, you know, n- nothing more to plug. I think I plugged away, but I mean, uh, I my um, website is SebastianBendix.com, Bendix with an X, and I'm pretty active on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and stuff. Um, just look for Sebastian Bendix. You know, I'd love to, you know, talk to people and, you know, um, get feedback or give advice or anything, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm, you know, pretty active on the socials. So excellent. Say hi. Well, Hey, thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's always nice to have you on. We'll, we'll definitely have to have you back again. And, uh, yeah, I wish you the best of luck with the, with the optioned screenplay. Hopefully that'll bear some fruit for you. Yeah. Who knows? You know, you know, it's just, it's a crapshoot out here in Hollywood, yeah, but absolutely. thank you. Yeah. It was like, like you said, it's always nice to know somebody's appreciating your work, even if, even if it doesn't go anywhere, you know, which is obviously the ultimate goal. That's what we I mean. You can't say that eh, we don't want it ever to go anywhere, but it's, it's still nice that somebody appreciates it enough to option it. So that's really cool. When you're a writer, just the validation of somebody <laughs> liking it is enough. Yeah. You know? It's a lonely world. Sometimes someone just saying, Hey, this made my day is enough to, to keep you going. So exactly. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much and enjoy your, your Halloween marathon. And uh, hopefully the, the new movie comes out. You'll enjoy that as well. Thank you so much, Daniel. And thank you uh, for, for having my story on your show. Your, Absolutely. Your great show. Absolutely. I always, always enjoy having you on. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library or on our website at thewickedlibrary.com. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get Wicked Fun rewards like access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. We're excited to announce that we have an additional partner for Season 9, but we're going to go ahead and give her a shout-out early. Our longtime art contributor and interviewer for Season 7 Jeanette Andromeda has a growing YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Jeanette Andromeda. Jeanette is an illustrator exploring the world and creating arty adventures. Watch her channel to see her unique take on art and horror as she makes art and shares her process. She's truly one of our favorite people, and we know you'll love her as much as we do. Again, find her channel at youtube.com forward slash Jeanette Andromeda. Complete credits and full show notes, including links, 
and information from today's episode can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the haunt to find you. This week at Macy's, it's time for a winter refresh with 25 to 50% off clearance plus an extra 20% off with your coupon or Macy's card. Or shop specials like sterling silver jewelry sets, now 70% off. Grab new jeans for the kids with 50% off Junior's denim. And Martha Stewart Collection flannel bedding accessories and more, 65% off. Now at Macy's. Plus, Star Rewards members can earn on every purchase except gift card services and fees. Savings off sale and clearance prices, exclusions apply.